Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. Um, But yes, it is a new day. And in fact, March the 8th is a really significant day in my life. And I hadn't kind of thought about it until this morning. Um, It was March the 8th, 1981, that I left here to go as God had called me to go to Zimbabwe. I was 24 years of age and God had been speaking in my heart. I'd only been a believer for three years and God was really speaking in my heart about going. And, and I went with a three-month return ticket and it was nine years before I was to come back and live in this country again. And it was, it was what made me. Those nine years of my life is what the foundation for who I am today. And as I was singing those songs this morning, I was so moved because... Um, it was God has kept me and as I got on the plane that night I still every March the 8th it reminds me as I got on the plane that night to go um, uh, the scripture that I opened my Bible to was as I was sitting on the plane was I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep me quite incredible every March the 8th I remember that and I just think God thank you because in those years you you used me and, and, and you you broke me down and you built me up. And, you, and because of my personality, perhaps, God needed to take me somewhere else to do that. For those of you who are out of your own home country, there's a reason why you're here. Yeah. And, and God took me away from here, took me from all my family, all my friends, everything I knew, all my securities in order to do. And I wanted to go. Don't worry, I didn't go with my arm up my back. I wanted to go. But, um, you know, sometimes there's a reason why God will have you in another country away from your family and your friends and those things that you hold as securities. And it was the most amazing time of my life, and I'm so thankful to God for those years um, of my life. Um, so here we are in Ruth, and, and um, uh, we're now in chapter 4. Um, and we're beginning... Mark spoke last week, and even though I wasn't here, I've listened to the podcast. Mark spoke last week about relationship integrity. It's so important relationship integrity we've got to be different and we've got to be seen to be different it's no good saying we're different we've got to be seen to be different the bible says abstain from all appearances of evil not just abstain but let people see that you're abstaining let people see that you're different let people see that you have different standards that you actually are are people of integrity that you do what you say Um, and uh, We're now moving from that um, where Boaz has said that he is going to uh, redeem um, and he's got a plan now with Naomi and Ruth. And we start off, we're going to look today at the cost of redemption um, just in uh, six verses in Ruth 4. Get your binoculars out. (laughs) Now Boaz had gone to the gate and sat down and behold the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, um, but, um, but if you will not, tell me and I may, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to buy the field from the hand of Naomi. You, sorry, for there is no one else to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow um, of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz went and sat at the gate. Boaz went to the city gate and he sat down. It's a very significant place to be, at the gate of the city. If you look back through the Old Testament, you'll see that transactions were carried out at the city gate. It was a place where disputes were settled. It was a place where judgments were made. It was a place where everybody knew you could get the gossip, if you like, or the news of what was going on in the city. The city gate was an important place to be. If you look back over in scriptures in Genesis, when the angels arrived at Sodom, Lot was sitting in the gateway, at the gate. If you look back um, into Samuel, you'll see that when the soldiers arrived in Shiloh and reported that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, Eli was sitting at the city gate. David, he stood by the gate when the troops went out to fight with Absalom. And when they returned, he was at the city gate. Mordecai, he heard about the plans to assassinate uh, the Jews. He was sitting at the city gate. He heard it there. He heard what was going on and it was through that interaction that he was able to speak to Esther. And we know that Boaz went to the city gate because he knew that the Redeemer, the one who he was looking for, would pass through. People had to pass in and out on their daily work or whatever it was they were doing. And he knew if he sat there, he would meet the person that he wanted to meet um, and to do the business. And the people that he needed to witness the business would also be there too. Boaz positioned himself to do what he needed to do. He could have just waited to see whether their relative had remembered that Naomi had come back. He could have just waited to see whether the relative would knock on his door and say, oh, by the way, I think you come after me and I can't do this. He could have waited. But it says quite clearly that um, he was a man of his word. He was a man of his reputation. It says, because Naomi had said to Ruth, don't worry, for this man will not rest. If you go back into the end of chapter 3, this man will not rest. He will settle the matter today. Boaz was a man of his word. He was a man of integrity. He was going to do what he said he was going to do, and so he positioned himself to do it. I think so often, and I know when I look back on church life, is that we expect God to do everything. You know, but God expects us to position ourselves. God expects us to know what we need to do and to position ourselves in order to do it. We're not puppets. We're co-laborers. I mean, God has dropped something in our heart, and when we are growing up in Christ... God expects us to have a reputation, to have a reputation of integrity. The world is full of people with good intentions, but good intentions change nothing. Nothing ever happens on the strength of good intentions. We will say we're going to do this or we're going to do that or we're going to be here or we're going to be there. If you don't follow through and if you don't position yourself, 
in order to follow through and for that to happen, then it won't happen. Nothing happens with good intentions, and every one of us, including me, have had good intentions about all sorts of things in the moment, but actually never follow through on them. They mean nothing. They're worthless. But Boaz was a man of his of reputation to be known for fulfilling what he said he would do. And therefore, Naomi said with confidence, he'll sort this out today. He won't let this rest. He'll get onto it. And so he went to the city gate and he positioned himself. <clears throat> Sometimes I think over the years, and for those of you who have been around church for a long time, we've got confused with grace and works. Uh, what is our part and what is God's part? Yes, of course, we're saved by grace. And yes, of course, God is, uh, we, what we do is, is, uh, is not out of works that saves us. But Paul says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You know, when we really do have faith in God and we know that God has 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 given us a burden or something to do or has dropped something into our heart, then as co-laborers with him, we show that faith by what we do, by positioning ourselves in order to enable us to follow through. An action or a non-action in our world is going to depend on our perspective of God. It's going to depend on the angle from which we're looking. And that is what is so important and I know that in life, two people can be looking at the same thing and they can see it completely differently. And it's usually because we've got our own angle on things. We've got to have God's angle on things. We've got to have God's perspective on things. I remember years ago when I lived in New Zealand, after I'd spent some years in Zimbabwe, I went to live in New Zealand. And I can remember there I had friends who had, were farmers, because many of them are there, and I used to spend a lot of time on the farm. And on the farm there was this great big hill and I used to love climbing to the top of the hill and just sitting, looking out over the plains and the cows and whoever else was there and just <coughs> meditating, sitting there with God. In fact, it's just, it just reminded me, one day I remember I went up there early in the morning and the grass was still wet because of the dew. And um, I remember standing there thinking, God, I just so want to spend this time up here with you, but I can't sit down because uh, the grass is all wet and I don't know how long I can stand up. I really want to have some quality time up here with you. And God just spoke into my spirit. He said, look around. <clears throat> and I looked around and just down the hill on the other side, there was an old shed. And um, God said, go and have a look in there. And I went and looked in the shed and there was an old car seat. <laughs> And I, great, and I dragged this car seat up the hill and I sat it, put it on the top of the hill and I sat up there for a couple of hours just being with God. It was just come back to me, I remember it was great. But as I was looking out over the, over the hills, I remember one day the sun was shining but there were a few clouds in the sky. And as I looked down on the grass where the sun had been shining, it was green, it was lush, it was beautiful. But when I looked at where the cloud was covering the sun the grass there was brown because it was in the shade and God really spoke to me and he said you know it depends where you're looking and from what perspective you're looking at it because the sun is still shining the sun hasn't stopped shining it's just that the cloud has moved in front of it so you can look at the object you can look at the results of the barrier that's come between the sun and the grass and you can look at the results and say my goodness it's brown or you can look at this side and say, actually, this is lush and it's still green. And this would be lush and green if we just moved the barrier out of the way. The sun is still shining. The sun hasn't stopped shining. And God really spoke to me about perspective. It's the perspective from which you look at things which will determine the outcome 
of where you see yourself in that. And it's really important that we start to see God's perspective. And I was listening to a podcast the other day and something really jumped out at me. And I, I just want to show you a new perspective that, and I hope I can explain it in a way that I feel that I've understood it or it's come to me um, about positioning ourselves. Because just like Boaz positioned himself um, as our kinsman redeemer, God positioned himself as our kinsman redeemer too. And not only did God position himself, he repositioned us. And I don't think we sometimes see ourselves in, from this repositioned perspective. And we really do need to see ourselves from the perspective that God sees us, where he has positioned us. You know, I, while I was away, I was obviously thinking about lots of things. And I, I was reading, looking in the paper, and, um, and uh, I, I just despair at what's happening in the world, particularly at what's happening in Syria and what's happening day after day. We see these terrible, terrible pictures of atrocities in the paper. And, uh, and I think, um, and I, I remembered the scripture that said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days. And I'm thinking, God, if it was like this in the days of Noah, no wonder you wanted to flood the earth. Yeah. You know, it really is. And I thought, there is no other time in history than I can think that... Um, it, it, when no other greater time in history when the church should be rising up, yeah. when we should be the salt and light. This world needs God. This world needs the church to be what the church should be in order that we might be the salt and light for the earth. And, you know, we can sit over here in England in our nice ivory tower. All we have to worry about is the NHS or the next election or the price of food. But actually, if it were to come our way... I think we'd be on our knees. I think we really would. You know, we can't just say, oh, well, it's happening over there. Don't worry about it. No, it's happening in the earth. It's happening in the earth. And God has put the church in the earth. And we have a responsibility to... And, and it was in, as I was thinking about these things, and I remember when Habakkuk cried out, God, how long, how long, how long are you going to let this kind of thing carry on? Mm. You know, but God has still got everything in control. And when I say despair, I don't mean utter despair. I know God still has everything in control. But I can't ignore it. I can't ignore what's happening in the earth. And so God positioned himself and God positioned us and repositioned us. So if we could just have the next slide up and I just want to try and explain this to you. <clears throat> God is in... God, Father, Son and Holy Ghost in heaven as creators in the heavens. And we can read in scripture that God created Lucifer and he created Michael. Now Lucifer, who we know as the devil, and I don't, I'm not going to, uh, we never really talk about the devil in preachers, but I'm going to talk about him for a few minutes. He is not on a par with God. He is on a par with Michael. He's a created being. He is not on a par with God. And if we want to look at scripture, and I haven't put these up here, but there are two main scriptures which will talk to you about Ezekiel, um, which will talk to you about Lucifer. And one is in Ezekiel, and it says, um, "You were the mode of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. You were beautifully crafted and set." in the finest gold. You were given, they were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as a mighty angelic guardian. 
So when Lucifer was first created, he was created as a guardian angel. That's who he was. He's never on a par with God. He's on a par with Michael. Um, he's a created, um, a created angelic angel, a guardian angel, if you like. It said, you had access to the holy mountain of God and you walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all that you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God and I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from the place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and I exposed you um, to the curious gaze of kings. And now there's another passage in Isaiah which says, how you have fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of God's far away and I will climb hill, etc., etc." But it says then that... Um, um, the next verse, the kings of the nations lie in stately glory, each in his own tomb, but you will be thrown down from the, uh, out of the grave like a worthless branch, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will be dumped into the mass grave with those who are killed. You will descend to the pit. So we know that this is Satan. And so we know, and if you could just do one click, we know that he was cast down. He was cast down out of heaven. Remember, he's not on a par with God. He's on a par with the guardian angels. And he was sent down to earth. He was banished. So he comes down to earth and he meets Adam and Eve. And the only purpose of Lucifer, of the devil, is to kill, rob and destroy. That's his only purpose, to kill, rob and destroy. And you only have to look around the world and ask yourself in everything you see, is this killing, robbing or destroying? If the answer is yes, you know it's the hand of Lucifer. Because that's his aim. That's what he wants to do. And we know that he came down to earth. We know that he tempted Eve in the garden. We know that Adam and Eve sinned. And we know that therefore they were expelled from the garden and out of the presence of God. And then we know, if you can give me just one more click, we know that as a result then, Jesus came to earth, didn't he? It was always in God's plan that Jesus, the Son of God, would come to earth. Redemption was always in God's heart. But the only way that Jesus could redeem us was if he became after our kind, as if he became our kin. If he had said to Lucifer, I'm God, I'm almighty, I'm all-powerful, I'm going to take back what you've stolen, Lucifer would have said, that's not fair. You're God. God said, okay, you... I will come down, what you stole from a man, I will come down and redeem as a man. Yes, I will be there of their kind, a kinsman redeemer. Yeah. I will be of their kind. I will leave the splendor of heaven. I will come down. Yeah. I will be born in a stable. I will humble myself. I will become like them in order that I can take back what you took. It'll be a fair fight. It'll be a fair fight. I'll come in as a man. I will come of their kind and I will take back what you stole from them. He came to seek and to save everything 
that was lost and taken from mankind. But as our kinsman redeemer, he had to be like us. We're talking about kinship. It's worth just pausing to think about what he actually did. How he actually took back for us everything that had been taken away from us. And then what did God do? One more click, please. He took mankind and another one. And he seated us together with him in the heavenly realm. So he came down for us and he repositioned us. Where has he repositioned us? With him. In Christ. Okay, one more. And he sent the Holy Spirit. So there was a presence of God in the earth. He has not left the earth without his presence, but he's repositioned us so that what? So that we can see things from his perspective. We can see things from a heavenly perspective. The problem with us is we're so earthly minded. We're so earthly minded. We are so small minded. It's all about me and mine and my problems and my issues. We've got to lift up our heads. We've got to see things from a heavenly perspective. This is a time for the church to see what God sees. And to get into what God's plan is. Next one, please, Luke. So now we have the Holy Spirit working with mankind. So where are we? We are both here, but we're seated together with him in heavenly places. We can say, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, because we can see the heavenly perspective if we want to. We can see from God's perspective He's put us up there so that we can declare, let your kingdom come because we are both heavenly minded and we are positioned here on earth. We are in the earth, but we are not of the earth. Next one, Luke, please. Oh, sorry, okay. Just go back on that one. Sorry, that's the end. So Jesus comes down to reposition us, having repositioned himself. So where are we? We are in heaven and we are on earth. And where is Satan? On earth. He's only on earth. He's not on a par with God. He is not only on a par with the angels and now he's not on a par with us. Because where are we? We're seated together with him in heavenly places. Why are we living in defeat? You know, God leads us in triumphant procession. And you know what? When I think of triumphant procession, I think about things like the carnivals, you know, where they go out in front with their trumpet and the singers. And I always, I always picture this in my head because I'm a picked, I learn by picturing things. And I always think of myself with the trumpet. And when Satan gets in the way, I just whack him with it. You know, <laughs> get, get out of the way. Get out. He's not on a par with us. Why do we live in defeat? Because we look at things in the, from the wrong perspective. You know, we're not under him. He did come alongside us. He did steal from us, but God came alongside us and took it back and put us back up there with him in relationship with him. And he's left the Holy Spirit down here. God has positioned us for victory. Our starting point is victory. Our starting point is not defeat. Our starting point is I'm here with him in heavenly places. That's my starting point. 
I'm positioned to start now from a place of victory. In everything I do in life, I'm positioned to start in a place of victory. We are positioned for success. We are positioned um, to fulfill everything that God has put in us. One of the things that Paul Scanlon said yesterday, which spoke to me, and I want to unwrap it for you guys a bit more because it was so interesting. One of the things he said was, God has gifted you... He was talking to all of us. God has gifted you with what he's gifted you with, but it's your responsibility to hone it and refine it. Don't just say, oh, God, come along and anoint me. Get on with growing yourself. Get on with refining your gift. I'm quite sure that, I mean, we all think that Adam is an amazing pianist. He doesn't play like me because he uses all his fingers. But... (laughs) (laughs) And thumbs. But I bet... I bet you practice, don't you, Adam? Yeah. You don't just think, oh, well, I can do this now. Adam will still practice. Adam will still try and refine his gift and hone his gift because God has gifted him. And if he doesn't, it'll dry up. You know, God has gifted all of us. He's brought us together as a church. He's positioned us. He's positioned us for success. And we need to lift up our head and start looking at things from God's perspective. We are positioned for victory. That is our starting point. Our starting point is not defeat. Satan was never on a par with God. He was on a par with Michael, and now he's not even on a par with us. And the amazing thing is in Ezekiel, in that passage that I was reading to you, one of the verses in verse 16, it says this. Therefore, they will stare at you and ask, this is Satan, could this be the one who shook the earth? And made the kingdoms of the world tremble? Is this the one who destroyed the world and made us into a wasteland? Is this the king who demolished the world's greatest cities and had no mercy on his prisoners? One day we're going to look at Satan and we're going to say, Was it you? Was it really you? Was it really you that I was afraid of? Was it really you who held me in fear? Was it really you who held me in bondage? Was it really you who stopped me from looking up and seeing God's perspective? Man, was it really you? Put him in his place. He might be a roaring lion, but he has no power. When he was expelled from heaven, he lost his authority. And one day we're going to look at him and say, man, you caused me such grief. Why did I allow that? Because I never saw myself from the perspective that God saw me. When I was at school, I was really naughty. (coughs) I was, Matthew. You wouldn't have been able. (laughs) It's not what my friends say. (laughs) I was, and I was always in trouble. And I remember I went to a grammar school where they wore their caps and gowns all the time. So I can remember I was always standing in front of their, always in front of the headmaster, virtually every day. And he'd stand there like this with his fingers in his gown. He's really pompous, and his cap on. And well, Holman, what have what have you done this time? You know, smoking in the toilets again. (laughs) <laughs> oh he was and I was afraid of him it's funny I was initially I was afraid of him I'd only been <laughs> initially I was afraid of him uh, and um, after a while I got used to him and I just thought you know well what is it getting told off in fact I was in detention most nights so if I didn't get detention my mum thought I'd skipped off because I got home early <laughs> And so, but I remember when I left school and uh, he sitting there again, very pompous, well, Holman, what are you going to do with your life? Oh, I'm going to be a nurse, sir. He said, oh, well, I hope I'm, 
I hope I'm never one of your patients, he said. <laughs> I said, OK. Anyway, he said, you'll never amount to anything. It's OK, fine. Anyway, many years later in the 90s, I was working in a local hospital, and I came in one morning, and there was his name on the board. Oh, yes! <laughs> yes! I'll look after that patient. <laughs> that patient in room 12, I'll look after him. Don't you worry. He'll be fine with me. I'm going to show him what detention is all about. <laughs> but do you know what? When I went in his room and I saw this old, frail man who couldn't even hold his bladder, I looked at him and I thought, why was I so afraid of you? Why was I so afraid of you? You're just a man. Yeah. You were just a man. You wore this gown and you behaved in a pompous way. But you were just a man and now you're dying like everybody else. <laughs> now you need my care. And I was really kind and compassionate to him, even though I wanted to give him an enema. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> You know what, I... <laughs> but you know what, in that moment I thought, I was only afraid of you because of the way you behaved. You're just a man. And now you're dying. Now you can't, you need my help to stand up and get out of bed. You know, one day we're going to look at Satan and we're going to say, man, was it really you? Church, we've got to start seeing ourselves from where God has repositioned us. He's already sorted Lucifer. He's already dealt with him. Yeah, and he's positioned us now. Now, interestingly, we don't know the name uh, of the relative that Boaz was planning to meet. It doesn't say who he is. And we don't know how, how he responded and... and um, and, and this, isn't, this isn't relevant, really, in that sense. We don't know who he was. The person that was the next of kin to redeem Naomi is nameless, and that's okay. And we know that he was willing to buy the land, but then when he heard that he had to take Ruth as well, he changed his mind. Yeah. Because it would encroach on his, what he had already. And I think this is really important, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. You know, sometimes we're willing to have the land, but we don't want the people. We're willing to have some, but we don't want it all. We want what would make, it more profit, make our lives more profitable or more comfortable. We don't want what might make our lives more difficult or more tricky. And so we know that, actually, <clears throat> he said, well, actually, now I know that I've got to take the whole thing and I've actually got to produce an heir for Naomi and for Ruth. Actually, I don't want to go there because it's going to upset my world too much. And too many of us are like that because we're <coughs> earthly minded. We're too focused on me and mine, my home, my job, my family, my this, my that, instead of God's. And God has positioned us. God says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things I'll just take care of. Don't worry about all those other things. And we've got to see ourselves in that place and not be concerned about how the impact of what God is requiring of us to do is going to impact on what we've already got. Redemption has obligations. You cannot cherry pick. You cannot cherry pick from the word of God. You cannot cherry pick from what God is asking of you in your life. Jesus did not cherry pick. He did not say, well, I'll actually, I'll redeem mankind, but don't ask me to go to the cross. Don't ask me to go down there. 
Don't ask me to become a man. Don't ask me to live that life. But Jesus said, no, I will do the whole thing. We cannot cherry pick. You can't have the land and not have Naomi and Ruth and the obligations that it brings. And we so often have a distorted view of God because we only want to pick out the truth we want to hear. Our perspective is, is different um, because of the way we're looking. And if we're looking at life from my standpoint, me here on earth with my home, my job, my family, my income, my this, my that, then it will distort the view that I have of what God requires of me. If I forget all about that and I look from God's perspective where he's seated me in heavenly places, I will then see those things will fade away into insignificant insignificance and God will give them I will see them from his perspective I know of people who who don't want to come to Christ because they think they're going to have to give up things I'd have to give up my nice life well it's such a lie it's such a lie because sub and perhaps subconsciously we've perpetuated it in the church I remember when I first came here I was told oh you can't do this and you can't do that and you better stop smoking and you better wear a hat and you better and it's like Fortunately, I was still in my rebellious state in those days, so I didn't take any notice. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes I think the church has perpetuated, you have to live like this, when actually Jesus, all Christ ever said was come. <coughs> come, come, all who are thirsty, just come. And I think that um, <clears throat> we as a church and as the church need to be able to have that same ethos with people. Come, just come. Titus 2 and verse 14 says this, It says, um, who gave himself for us, this is Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous for good works. That word redeem is lutro'u, and it actually means to buy or to possess. So all we have to do is come, and then God says he'll do the rest. He will purify us, he will make us a people for himself, and he will make us zealous to do what he's required us to do. Historically, interestingly, and um, um, historically in the Old Testament and in those times, when people would buy slaves, they would bring them to the marketplace. And the people who were going to buy slaves would have an opportunity to check them over. A bit like when you go to buy a car, you can test drive it. And so sometimes people would come to the market to test the slaves to see whether they were fit and healthy. Sometimes they would beat them to see how much they could endure. And they would check their teeth and they would check them over to see how fit and healthy they were. And the ones who were the healthiest, of course, that they had to pay the highest price for. And if the person who was selling the slaves could see that two people were interested in these slaves, the price would just go up and up and up and up and they would become of great worth. Slaves could be very expensive, and if a slave was healthy and fit, they could command a very high price. But there's another thing that used to happen in the marketplace. Sometimes people would come to buy slaves just to set them free. And people would pay that high price, no matter what the price, because they were actually intending to set them free, not to keep them. They wanted to liberate them. So the cost was irrelevant, because the purpose was to set them free. And it didn't matter what they paid. Paul paints this same picture of Christ coming to the slave market of Satan, if you like, and paying the highest price possible so that he could redeem, so that he could liberate, so that he could set free. Christ has come to the earth, if you like, the slave market of Satan. 
and he's come to the earth. He's paid the highest price. So he says, I can have everything I want. I can buy everything I want. I can redeem everything I want to because I've paid the top price for everything. Um, Once purchased, we are not our own. We're bought with a price. And once purchased, God says, right, now I've bought you. I'll sort you out. (laughs) I'll purify you. I'll do the work in you. I'll make you into what I want you to be. Redemption is free. It's paid for by Christ. It has repositioned us. But to live there is going to cost. If we want to see ourselves in heavenly places, it's going to cost. It was free to us but it's going to cost us something. God has obligations. He's placed obligations on redemption. What are our obligations? To go into all the earth, to preach the good news, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to make disciples of all nations. We have, a, we have an obligation with what God has done for us. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm going to finish with this. I'm not going to read the scripture, but you know the story in Luke where a man was preparing a great feast. And he invited all the people to come. And they just made excuses. And one said, oh, I've just bought a field. I've got to look at it. Another one said, I've just bought some oxen. I need to go and try them out. One says, I found a wife and so I can't come. And then the owner of the feast said, well, go out into the streets and bring in the the lame and the blind and the crippled and the poor and go out in the hedges and the alleys. And whosoever will, let them come. Let them come. What excuses have we got? What excuses have we got? Don't wait until what's happening in Syria is happening on our doorstep. Because then, I tell you, we will be pulling our pants. Now is the time. We, now is the time to see ourselves as where God has put us and the perspective. Satan is working his hardest in the world now because he knows that time is short. Never in all history has there been a time like now, I think, except in the days of Noah. Boaz positioned himself not only to redeem, but he positioned himself for a wedding, didn't he? He positioned himself for a bride. God has done that too. God has positioned himself to be the bride and the bridegroom, and he's positioned us to be the bride. This is God's eternal purposes for the church, but right now, There's something we need to do. Thanks.